I want to read from 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 10. Now, just to set the context, Paul has, is starting to address an issue in chapter 8, and then he continues his argument in 9 and 10, and the, and the overall theme here is idolatry and whether or not they should eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, in chapter 8 and 9, he has agreed that there's, that there's no substance to idols, that uh, they're not real gods, and it really, no, they really can't do anything to you if you go there and you share in the food that's been sacrificed to an idol. But he says maybe you shouldn't do that out of respect for those who will too easily, their faith will be destroyed. Not that they'll be offended. That's a, that's a very weak argument, that they'll be offended or they won't like it. He means their faith in Christ will be ruined. So he says, if you really are the stronger ones, the more mature, the enlightened, then you will understand that dallying in that can cause them to be destroyed. Okay. But now in chapter 10, he, he doesn't reverse his argument, but he adds to it. He makes another argument, and his other argument is going to be, then again, folks, we're talking about going to temples where idols are worshipped. He's saying, maybe that's not such a great idea. And here's what he has to say. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink, and then they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? Well, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake 
of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Somebody will say, well, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Well, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then he's going to start on a new topic, and that's for next week. Um, let's go back, because he gets started here, and he starts referring to history. Now, Jews and Gentiles both in this audience, he acts as if they know the stories, and if they don't know the stories, he wants them to know the stories. And this opening references a lot of different Old Testament stories of uh, Israel in the wilderness, and, and what he's doing is he's taking that story and he's comparing it to their situation. Because the one thing that they have in common is that they are the chosen people of God. Um, so first, he compares their way through the desert and through the Red Sea with baptism. They were baptized into Moses. That's nothing special. He's just comparing the baptism there and he's calling it a baptism of Moses to the baptism of Christ, which they would have all experienced in the church in Corinth. Uh, and he talks about the cloud, and they were passing through the water, and he says, hmm, isn't that like a baptism? So if the Corinthians thought, well, you know, as long as we were baptized, then we're especially protected against all this. His point to them is, well, they, they had a pretty special baptism too, and yet they could arouse the jealousy of God. M maybe we ought to think about it too this is his point and then he talks about them all drinking the same spiritual food and or they're all eating the same spiritual food drinking the same spiritual drink obviously he's comparing that to communion because what would have identified the christian community was that they shared in the baptism like jesus was baptized a baptism for forgiveness of sins a baptism which is a new birth that would have been one of their their important points of communion and then they would have had the common meal at least on the first day of the week that when they gathered together the bread and the cup meant the body and the blood of the lord and so there was meaning in this common meal together so he compares that to the way that god fed them miraculously in the wilderness the manna and the quail uh, you know if you want to if you want to put down your references here that's exodus 16 uh that, you know, here's God leading his people through the wilderness, and he's feeding them. Um, the rock is Exodus 17, where Moses strikes the rock, and, and water 
comes forth. And um, when he says that the rock is Christ, wait a second, are we talking about a pre-embodiment of Jesus Christ? And No, uh, he's, he's making a comparison to the two. He's saying that, look, we drink the blood of Christ. That's our Savior. That water is salvation. He says the rock and Christ, it's the same thing. This is this is symbolic, I think. It, it, Jesus does not have to be embodied as a rock for this text to make sense, okay? Now, if somebody wants to make the case that that's the way it is, fine, that's dandy, but the point is the same. The point is the same is that they all drank from the same source. And he says in verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness, and they, they, they succumbed to the wilderness. You know, the generation that went into the Exodus is not the generation that came out of it. And that 40 years of wandering in the desert would have been shorter if the people had had more faith. It, it, because you remember the report of the spies when the, when the 12 went in to survey the land, uh, they came back. Joshua and Caleb said, we can do this. The other ten said, no, no, it's, it's, too, it's too much for us. So God had to wait until a generation came of age in the wilderness. Not only did they have more faith in God, but they were so sick of being in that wilderness that they were ready to fight anyone to get into a land. Yeah, I, do, I do believe that is part of the message there. And I'm not saying that you cut God out of it in that way, but I think God is raising up a generation to accomplish his purposes that's the part that scares me is that sometimes I'm thinking, boy, if my generation doesn't get it, then God, can, God doesn't have to wait on me and my generation. He can use the generation that's following after me. And um, so if my generation doesn't get it, I want to be Joshua and Caleb. <laughs> and I, I want to I join in with them and say, come on, you young ones, we'll fight this. So just, you know, we need to keep that in mind. His point here is, is that even though they had that that baptism, and even though they drank you know, the, from the same source and they all ate the same food from heaven, that alone didn't save them. That couldn't protect them when they, when they failed to trust in God. So it's a warning. And that's what he says in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not, why? So that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul's interpreting what happens to Israel as, you know, they, they had all the, the, what we might call it is, the, the marks of the true believers. Of the, you know, they had all the marks of the true church or the chosen people. They had all the signs. They knew God. They had all the knowledge. And he started out by saying that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He said they had it all. But because they desired evil rather than desired God, it was their undoing. Okay, so then in verse 6, he says, Now don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Oh, yeah? Well, where's that written? Okay, that's going to be... Um, can't see my own notes there. That's going to be Exodus 32. Yeah, and... Um, Then he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. These might not be as familiar to us, these references. That's going to be Numbers chapter 25. This, this is, um, you know, the, the, um, 
The Numbers 25 passage has to do with uh, the people intermarrying with uh, other groups. It's not the intermarriage with other groups itself that's the problem. The problem is what it leads to, and it leads to idolatry. And in Numbers 25, it's stated that because they started to intermarry, then they started to worship the gods, the, the, uh, the, you know, the, the idolatrous gods of those other nations. And uh, because of that, a plague came upon them, and 20, something like 23,000 died. Um, and, and the way they stop it is drastic. They, they, they have to, you know, they, anyway, you can read Numbers 25 for yourself. I don't want to get into the details. But um, uh, it's gruesome, actually. Um, but it's not, again, the, the intermarriage, that, that's not as much the issue as what it leads to, the associations and then the being led away into idolatry. And I think this is a very good lesson for them. Paul's already said, look, eating the meat that's sacrificed, if your conscience isn't wounded and no one else's conscience is wounded, that's not a problem. The problem is what you start to participate in if you go in that direction. And Paul's warning here is not just a new set of rules. He's asking them to judge for themselves. Uh, he says we must, we must not put Christ to the test. This idea of putting Christ to the test or putting God to the test, uh, Roy and I were talking on the way in here. There's a lot of similarities with this text and the text of James. That when, uh, uh, that when anyone is tempted, he shouldn't say, well, God is testing me. No, God doesn't do that. That's not the way he operates. And, and often the Old Testament says of God, and now Paul is saying it of Christ, don't put him to the test. And, and it's, it, the, the, okay, well, if we're not putting him to the test, then what do we need to do? Well, how about we show the proper respect? How about we show the, the deference that we would to our king and our savior, the one that we give our full allegiance to? That might be the opposite of putting Christ to the test. Uh, he says uh, that uh, when they put God to the test, they were destroyed by serpents. And that's the uh, Numbers 21 story where then they make the bronze serpent and they have a way of salvation. Which, by the way, that bronze serpent, masterful image by Paul here because later on that becomes an idol generations later. And instead of the thing that God gave them for salvation being a way to remember God, they start to put their faith in the bronze serpent. Um, and then he speaks of the destroyer, which is Numbers chapter 14. Uh, the, um, he says, uh, when they grumbled, they were destroyed by the destroyer. And by the way, just when you thought, you know, okay, I'm getting through this, I mean putting Christ to the test, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, eating idle meat, no, I'm not going to do that. Engaging in sexual morality, don't have time for that, no way. I mean, that's, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, idolatry, no, that's not me. And you're thinking, yeah, okay, I don't see, I, no problems here, no problems here. And then he hits it, grumbling. Now, that's the one that a lot of us are going to have a hard time skirting past. I mean, we you know, well, how, have you ever grumbled? Oh, yeah, we do tend to grumble, don't we? And that, the grumbling is such a problem because it represents ingratitude. And there they are in the desert. We don't have anything to eat. God brought us out here in the wilderness to die. 
Here, have some manna. Oh, thank you, God. We've got manna. Everything's going just fine. I'm so sick of this manna. I wish there was something else to eat, you know. And it was their constant grumbling, which came from their worrying and came from their ingratitude. That's what put God to the test. And, and one of the greatest sins of Israel is their ingratitude. And they don't live out that gratitude, understanding the mission that God had. So here, if they're, and by the way, in Corinth, they seem to be fussing and feuding over different things. And if there's some uh, grumbling going on about people's practices and whether or not they're eating meat in the idol uh, temples or not, he's saying, why don't you overcome all of that? Which is why he uh, uh, makes the point again, verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, don't take Paul's point here to be, oh yeah, God killed all those 23,000 people in the desert just so he could teach us a lesson. No, that, that, that's not what he's saying. Uh, that happened because of what they did and because of the choices that they made and the consequences of those choices. He's saying, now that story continues on with us, and he's saying, really Paul's saying, we're foolish if we don't learn from it. Uh, he says, look, same God. And, and this is where Paul is making the case that the prophets often make God will not sit easily on the shelf with the other gods of our choosing. Uh, so even things that we hold dear, God and family and country, you'd better know not just which one of those is first, but which one of those stands above the others. And the right answer is God. Uh, and, that, and that can be tough for us, especially when we hold those other things dear. But God is not our, uh, our mascot or our spiritual totem that we can use to get good stuff. He's not our genie. He's not our servant. He's our creator. And so Paul is calling them to a very different kind of relationship with God than anything that they would be familiar with in the pagan world. And so he, uh, he talks about how it might be difficult to follow God. And now comes this verse that we're probably most familiar with when it comes to chapter 10. Uh, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. My childlike view of this years ago was that this was, uh, well, let me put it like this. Okay, I've told you all the story before that when I was a little guy, my father built me a, um, a clubhouse. And one of the things I insisted that he put in the clubhouse was a trap door. I just liked the idea of that trap door, that you could be inside there, and if you wanted to, to get out and escape and no one could see you, there'd be this little secret door in the floor. And um, my sons are actually tearing down the clubhouse that I built for them in our backyard. It's all rotten, and so I'm glad they're strong enough to do this. But one of the things we put in it was a trap door. You know, so there's a little... There's a little trap door that goes up into the upper deck, and then you can get down below. Okay, I always thought that this was God's trap door arrangement. That he's going to throw me into a sticky situation, and then he's going to say, Okay, look, we've got to see if you make it, but hey, don't worry. 
because there's a, there's a secret escape hatch in this situation. You just have to find it. And that's not very good, because uh, that sounds like God is testing me. And yet, I, I, I've, I've thought that, and I thought, well, I've grown out of that. But then often, it's been frustrating to think that God puts us in situations, and we think there ought to be a way of escape from this temptation, and we don't seem to be able to find it. And I've heard people who've struggled with things that, um, that you know, for them, it might be a real burden. Uh, maybe it's not for me, maybe it's not for you, but uh, different addictions, different uh, sins of temptation, uh, sexual sins, pornography, things like that. And then they struggle with this and they think, you know, why isn't there a way out? God always promised there would be a way out. Mm-hmm. He did. And that's a, that's a great assurance there. But I want you to notice something that maybe we don't always notice. Because I think when we want the way out, we want the quick fix. We want God to kind of open the trap door and then we get out. Oh, thank you, God. I guess we made it through the temptation, you know. And notice what he says here at the, uh, the last verse, verse 13. The way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, endurance doesn't sound like a quick fix. <laughs> endurance sounds like, wait a second, that means we might be stuck in this for a while. Again, Roy pointed out the comparison to James. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. That's not normal thinking. That's what we call counterintuitive thinking, that you have to adjust your thinking. Wait a second, if I face trials, then something's bad. God must be angry with us. He says, no. It may be that the trial you're going through is the opportunity for your faith to grow. And it may be the opportunity for God to make you stronger because the, the, the permanence of this world is not anything that we can depend on. Paul himself will talk about how he prayed to God to remove the thorn from his flesh, which we, we're still, we still don't know what that is. But whatever it was that was bothering, pestering, tempting Paul, whatever it was, the word from the Spirit was, my grace is sufficient for you. So there, and, and the theology of Revelation, we're preaching on Revelation on Sunday morning, the theology of Revelation is not that God just rescues his people out of a bad situation. He never promises that he'll save his people from the persecution. But he promises that he will save them and preserve them through it. Even if they die, he can still preserve them through it. Now that's a tough word because we like the happy endings. We like, we like uh, happily ever after. We like things to be fixed. We like things to be resolved. The problem is that sometimes our idolatry is that we think that if God's on our side, then everything has to go just so, or everything has to be just right. That's our idolatry. And so we judge ourselves or we judge others, or we grumble to God when things don't go the way we think. Well, I prayed, God, I prayed over and over, but God, why did this happen? And I'm not saying that God causes all bad things. No, we can never say that. Don't, don't, we don't want to go that far. If you go that far, you're going to be like Westboro Baptist Church and always claiming that every tragedy that befalls someone is because you've got this angry God that is upset about America or something like that. Well, they don't get to speak for God. And uh, I think none of us should ever be so bold as to say this happened because people... Uh, offended God. No, you let God speak for himself on that. 
What we need to know is, is that will God be faithful to his promises into eternity? And so far, the answer is yes, absolutely. What we see in Jesus Christ is the example that even though Jesus goes to the cross, which, by the way, is not just death. It's death. It's, it's shame. It undoes any good that was attached to his name. Crucifixion was meant to uh, not only kill you, but it was meant to discourage your followers. And, uh, and his followers do abandon him. But despite all that, despite the shame of it and the death and, and, and everything else, God still has the final word and raises Christ from the dead. Now that gospel message is going to be where Paul's going to end in chapter 15 when all of this keeps leading back to that. So he's saying, you know, what, what idol group are you going to participate in where the, uh, you know, where the God can be raised from the dead, where, bad, where good things can come out of bad things. They would have seen the world in terms of fortune and misfortune. Now, it, depending on what audience I'm talking to, and usually it's an audience of, of, of critics that will point this out, they'll say, oh yeah, well, I, I do know of a God that died and was resurrected, and it's not Jesus Christ. Oh yes, yes, you're talking about Mithras, and you're talking about the myth of the undying son, S-U-N. I get that. But still, that, and, and there, was a, there were first century cults, and you know, even before, but certainly more to the, after. And, and a lot of critics of Christianity try to claim that Christianity copied that. But you will still find in those groups the idea that if God blesses you, you will be fortunate, and if you are misfortunate, then God has cursed you. Christianity does not draw that conclusion. And that is one of the most significant things about it. The, you know, those gods like Mithras and all that, they all die, and then maybe they come back. I mean, you can go back in comparative religions, and you can look, and there were Egyptian gods that did that. But the God never suffered, never shared in suffering the way Christ shares in our sufferings and transforms those sufferings. That's the word that Christianity has that's unique. Um, this isn't just, you know, again, the escape hatch where Jesus says he's going to die, but in three days, presto, he's risen from the grave, you know. And he, I used to think that Jesus, you know, kind of knew, like, why would he be afraid? Because he, he pulled that off. He didn't. God raised him from the dead. And that makes all the difference. Because like us, as, hum, as a mortal human being, as a person, he trusts himself to God. Um, so after all that and he's saying that the, that the way of escape might be a way of endurance uh, the word there is about uh, you know being able to endure through the suffering or through the temptation he says therefore my beloved flee from idolatry now part of the reason why he says you will not be tempted beyond what you can stand means you can get out of it. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes I used to see that as kind of like a golf handicap, and that, you know, you, you know that matches equal players. It's like, well, you know, I, I still don't understand how handicaps work. I just know that if you match up people with their handicaps, it's your level of golfing ability. It matches you so that, you know, you're not out there uh, playing with um, people who are far better than you or far worse than you. 
Um, and I've always seen this. I always thought this was like our sin handicap. And if that's the case, then I wanted a really low handicap so that I never had to deal much with sin, you know. It's like, uh, hey, you're going to be tempted to eat Cheetos today. Oh, i got to resist. Okay, I did good. All right. And I didn't want to be really challenged because, you know, if you kept a low handicap, then, hey, that's great. I don't want to be tempted with all this stuff. This is not a ranking of people's ability to deal with sin. This means that we can, we can never say that... Um, God's not somehow on our side. That, that, that here they can flee from idolatry, meaning they have a choice to make. And he's using their own thinking here. Because they thought, you know what, we're, we're bigger than this. Uh, we know more. We have knowledge. We know that these idols don't count for anything. And he's saying, yeah, that's right. That's right. So get away from it. But wait, you just said it's nothing. Uh-huh. But I'm also saying it's a good idea for you to use that knowledge to get away from the idolatry. So notice what he says over here in uh, uh, verse uh, 22. All things are lawful. That'd be their phrase. They say, well, all things are lawful. He agrees, but not all things are helpful. So just because something's lawful doesn't mean it's a good idea. All things are lawful, they would say, right? But not all things build up. I used to remember a game that uh, saw a lot of young people do this too. And uh, I did it when I was a young person. Of course, I, you know, I was trying to figure this out, but it was always like, you know, well, you've got to find a scripture on that. And then I found out that adults do this too. You've got to find a scripture on that, you know, because if there's no scripture on it, then it's okay to do it. No problem with it. Yeah. There may not be a scripture on it, but it may, still may not be a good idea. If we're always having to look for book, chapter, and verse to find a prohibition, then we don't always understand that it takes wisdom sometimes to say, you know, maybe this isn't the best thing to do, or maybe it doesn't build up. Conversely, sometimes we don't have a prohibition or a permission to do something, but it might be something helpful that will build up, and so it's probably the right thing to do. Again, Paul's leaving this where they can think this through, and he'll say, you judge for yourselves. Uh, and then he talks about their participation. He says, when we come together for the communion, don't we all share in one cup? Don't we all share in one loaf? And we do because we share in the one body. Now here he's using that term body on every level you can imagine. It's the body of Christ, yes. But what about the body of Christ, the church? Yes. It's all of them. We don't have to decide. It's, it's all. And he's saying, if you participate in that, then, then, then why do you want to go participate in these other groups? Or, or, or why would you be compelled to? Because you have this greater allegiance. And this is where he ends up when he says, and this is one of the interesting things about God, is that God is jealous. I always thought jealousy was a bad thing. But God is jealous because God loves. And when you're in love, that's, that's one of the things you feel. Uh, the Greeks are the ones that made God emotionless. That God couldn't have any emotions because emotions will lead you astray. 
They're kind of like the Vulcans on Star Trek, you know. It's like, you know, like, yeah, well, we're above all that. We're mental. But for the Hebrews and for the Old Testament stories, God is passionate. Now, he's not capricious. He doesn't just do something because he's upset. But he does care. He's passionate. And don't we want people that care? I mean, we want people that it matters to them. And to God, their devotion to him matters because devotion to other things will end up getting them destroyed. I think it's a good thing that God cares. So he is letting the Corinthians know that uh, whatever they do, they should do to the glory of God, meaning that they ought to be in it for God's glory. Glory, by the way, is not, uh, you've got to have a little passion to have glory. Glory is one of those things that gets you stirred up. It's like, you know, yeah, what if we did something for the glory of God? And, and, and that, that's, uh, that, that sometimes, that's tough for us. Uh, like, you know, I, I think it's, you know, I've heard this term a lot of places, but here recently in, the, in this church family, it was always, I heard, heard Dr. Fisher always call us the frozen chosen, you know. And, uh, and that means that, you know, for a very intellectual people, it's kind of like, mm, 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 you know, we got But, and again, there's no reason to get hyped up and stirred up just for the sake of emotion. But boy, when you're passionate about the glory of God, that ought to lead us to some kind of reaction. And I don't mean just an emotional reaction, but maybe a, a, a change in the way we live. Yeah, I, I think it'd be great if we could see the things that we do. You know, we're getting ready to start a new school year over here. And, you know, we can do things just to build up the size of the group or just to, um, you know, justify what we're doing here. But what if we did it for the glory of God? What if we went out and we, uh, you know, did all the things we did? What if we came to worship? And today, the only thought that we have in worship is we're coming in here and we're worshiping all for the glory of God. Wow. So it's not about what I get out of it, and it's not about how did I feel, or did I get to sing the songs that I like, or the songs that I know. Or <clears throat> um, There was a couple of weeks ago, and, and you know, again, I... Sometimes I can't participate in a song by singing it, okay? Not just because I don't know it. But there was one song, and I, I told Brent or Logan or whoever was leading it, and I said, I could not sing that song. And it wasn't because I didn't know it. I did know it. But because I was listening to that song, and I thought, wow, I want to... My way of participating in it was to be instructed by the song and listening to all of you sing it. But it wasn't for me. It was for the glory of God. That was just my experience. But um, all of this then would be a much better calling than the calling to um, just find out what's lawful and then serve ourselves. Now, one thing I want to leave you with uh, is at the uh, end in verse 33, Paul says, Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Got to be careful with that statement. Uh, because if we make it our goal to please everybody to, the, to their satisfaction, well, you'll never be finished. <laughs> um, some people work very hard at being unhappy. And uh, there's not much you can do about that. And if it's your goal to please them, well, there is this other word that you won't find in Scripture, but it's a very powerful word. It's called codependency. And, uh, 
And, and be very careful that our attempts to please others are not an attempt to change them, control them, or to manage them. Uh, what Paul's talking about here is a type of respect that he, can, he does not have to insist on his way and that if he is among Greeks or if he's among Jews or if he's among the church of God in any way, uh, he can seek their good. He follows up with the phrase, not seeking my own advantage. He's saying that he, and again, he's tying back into that principle, that he can defer his own needs for their sake. That's what he means by pleasing them. He's speaking about a reasonable situation where you would be pleasing somebody who would understand that. And, and if there's a give and take, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm willing to give so that they might have the advantage and know Christ. Um, this is not the proof text that says that if anybody's unhappy, we need to do things their way or else they're going to be unhappy and we have to please them. I, I hate it that that little text has been taken out of context too often in history and used to uh, miss the whole meaning of this. So put it in its full meaning here that when you look at 8, 9, and 10, then he's just carried them through one of the questions they've asked, and he's shown them that the real path of maturity is, okay, so hopefully I think most of y'all remember the, the old television sets. You know, they're, they're, they're so different now, but they used to have knobs, and you could play with all these things, and you had the color and the tint and everything, and man, when we only had three networks, but we had more fun because if, you know, if Walter Cronkite was getting boring, we could make him green, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and, and we could change things or we could make him fat and skinny because you had the vertical hold and the horizontal hold. And it was all about the way that that little uh, electron gun scattered those electrons inside that tube. And what it would do is it'd make the picture tall or wide and, you know, and vertical and horizontal. Okay, we have in our, th- that's the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, the vertical and the horizontal. Here, he has brought it back to that vertical and horizontal. Show respect to others that if it's going to destroy their faith, then you need to think about what you're doing. But I also don't, he, he won't leave them just at the horizontal level. But the test is the vertical test. But what about God? Because you don't want to show dishonor to God and you don't want to put anything else out there that might make your own allegiances to him divided the way the Israelites did. And I like what Paul does in chapter 10 because when he's talking about the Israelites, it is so tempting for us to read about the Israelites and just, you know, cluck our tongues and shake our heads. Ah, those old Israelites. Oh. They're us. (laughs) They're us. They're the people of God. Paul gets it, and he wants them to get it too. We can't stand in judgment on the Israelites saying, oh, yeah, those Israelites. They're us. I mean, that, that's meant to improve so that we might be saints, so that we might be the holy. All right, we'll, we'll do more of this next week. You'll see how it plays out. Right now, we're going to sing this song. If you need to partake of the Lord's Supper, that's in room 100. Uh, Otherwise, Dr. Cole will dismiss us in prayer after this song. So let's all stand together and sing.